Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm Presents Bookburners, Season 4, Episode 7. One. The Wall of Teeth glistened. Livy Gonzalez scowled at it, wishing it were doing any number of other things instead. Twitching and grabbing at random passersby, for example, like the lamppost near the marble arch tube stop. Or gibbering in five languages like the eyes in the mist that hovered over Vauxhall Bridge. But no, these were just teeth. Motionless, faintly wet, and disappointingly absent of any kinetic element. They sprouted from an otherwise unremarkable alley wall, surrounded by badly smooth cement. Every single tooth was completely uniform in size and color, thanks to Libby's dentist mother. She knew they were probably baby molars and they fit together tightly with the biting surfaces facing out like pieces of a mosaic. The wall wasn't particularly frightening or evocative, which meant it definitely didn't work as a visual metaphor for the current state of London. And she needed that visual metaphor like she needed breath. Grover Frampton hovered near the wall of teeth, just out of frame. He was certainly kinetic, down to the shivering tips of his shaggy white mop, but he looked like a retired postman. He wasn't a visual metaphor for anything either, unless it was why men of a certain age should reconsider wearing the garments that had fit them 25 years ago, straining across the belly, baggy in the chest. It's going to work, right? He asked. He gazed at the camera with frank adoration. It's recording this time? I guess we'll know soon, Libby said. She fanned herself with her copy of Frampton's map of Weird London, which she had graciously thrown in for free after charging them 250 pounds for the private personal tour. Much use that had been. I'm sure it'll work, Grover said. He rubbed his hands together. You know, I'm the world's leading expert on Weird London. I even saw everything that happened that day with my own two... Libby turned away from Grover. How's the shot? She asked. Her cameraman, John, shrugged. You know how it is. You've seen the shot before. We all have. 
It's the same shot everyone else gets, just like all the tourists get the same selfie with Westminster Abbey from that Kodak spot. He said this in a placid way, an herbal way, not to put too fine a point on it. John was always calm in the storm of production, and Libby had always relied upon that before, but his calm, even here in weird London, even now, after all that had happened, she had suddenly realized that calm was overrated. Sometimes you needed someone by your side freaking out along with you just to anchor your sense of what was normal. Here were some things that were absolutely not normal. Almost being half-strangled by a goddamn streetlight. Walking down the block and finding yourself coated with a thin shell of fine grit sand by the other end, even inside your mouth and, eh, other uncomfortable places. Normal was also not your seasoned production crew erasing all their footage of the lampposts attacking, or static overriding all the footage of that mist full of eyeballs at the bridge, or sand getting inside a 1,200-pound camera and destroying the lenses. Libby walked over to the viewfinder of the new camera and scowled at that, too. Through the lens, the wall of teeth looked like any other ivory mosaic. It could have been edited into a documentary on 15th-century art, and nobody would have even noticed the difference. At worst, once you knew what it was, it came off like a badly conceived Halloween decoration. That wasn't going to do at all. How the hell are we going to get any money for this documentary if all our footage is this? The same lousy shot as every other two-bit filmmakers come up with. You're not. John shrugged. Libby wanted to shake him until his adrenaline gland woke up from its coma. Grover cleared his throat. Uh, you know, even if you, you can't film the special areas, that's not the only part of weird London that got touched. Libby steeled herself for whatever terrible idea was about to emerge from his mouth. Sure, what else did you have in mind? The people of weird London are just as delightfully strange now, he said. He lowered his voice to a whisper. Even I was touched. Did you know that my hair grows twice as fast now, and I can't go but three weeks between haircuts. I'm practically a bloody werewolf. He worked his way up to a droning crescendo. Few of us came away so lucky as me. For I myself was there the very day London changed, and I can tell you all about it. The dragon and the crow. I saw a red-headed man twelve feet tall striking down monsters with a magic sword like King Arthur himself. And I would be delighted to share my stories with you. He bowed with a flourish. Libby stared at him. He looked like a cross between a mop and a barrel. He sounded like an F-grade Shakespearean actor with an unpleasant whiny timbre. There was no way anybody would want to watch a documentary anchored by this fellow, and more to the point, there was no way she'd get any money for saying she was going to try. No sense in burning a bridge, though. And if he could hook her up with someone better, she'd have to make nice with him. She tried to think of how she'd react if he were a studio executive. A pinch of flattery, a whopping dollop of false enthusiasm. That's very kind, she said, and I think focusing on the people and not the places is a very exciting idea. Can you introduce me to some of these interesting people? You're at the heart of weird London, so you must know everything. And you must know everyone, too. That did the trick. Grover preened at this mild praise. Of course, he said, it would be my pleasure. There is only so much training a man can do before his limbs turn to rubber, even when that training is the kind you can do in an elementary school gym. Running laps, calisthenics, ritual-like movements with a medicine ball, 
It all added up to a formidable wall of fatigue. Liam hit that wall, then hurled himself against it for another fruitless hour before admitting to himself that he was cooked. That left a new problem. It was only five o'clock, and Liam still felt like a loaded gun waiting for somebody to fire it. Since Mr. Norris had met his end, the team had been lying low and trying to work out what they were going to do next. Stay together, yes, of course, they were a team. They were more than a team. But that didn't mean nothing had changed. And many of the changes were unpleasant. And just this morning, he'd bounced into the library looking for Sal to ask her what the plan was. For what? She'd asked. Liam had shrugged. Just plans for today, he'd said. Like a schedule. Are we training today or research or... Sal had rolled her eyes. Liam, grow up and develop some initiative. Sometimes you have to make some decisions on your own. Jesus Christ, do you want me to tell you when to blow your nose, too? Then she'd shared a look of exasperation with Grace. That had stung the most, that commiseration. But was she right? What had he done in his downtime at the Vatican? It hadn't all been training and orders, or had it? He'd gone through his daily routines on muscle memory, and now that he was removed from that place and those triggers, he couldn't bring to mind the patterns that had been familiar only a few months ago. Liam lay on his back, on one of the vinyl-coated gym mats, a puddle of his own sweat cooling around him, and stared at the jerseys hung in the rafters. Maybe what he needed was a good rest and a friendly face. Luckily, over the last few months, he'd discovered an easy, almost inevitable affinity with someone close by, with someone who had started out much like Liam had himself and gone through many of the same terrible and wonderful things. He dialed Perry, probably in the library with Asante. But that was clear in the far wing of the school, and anyway, he didn't want a chance running into Sal again. Hey, mate, you want to go have some fun tonight? Drink a pint or two? Maybe find an arcade? I'd love to, Perry said, but I already have plans tonight. Liam blinked. Doing what? I'm going out with Francis to a, well, uh, there's a place we like. Oh, oh. He blinked even harder. Congratulations, man, Liam said. Didn't realize you'd become an item. Nice to know angels aren't about the pleasures of the flesh, huh? It's not like that, said Perry. He sounded scandalized, though Liam wasn't sure about which part. We're just friends. I, uh, if you wanted to join us, you'd be welcome. I uh, wouldn't be a third wheel. Nah, man, we're just work friends, same as you are. Come on out with us. It sounds like you could use some fresh air and sunshine. Just promise me there won't be any fresh air or sunshine. Meet us at the front entrance at nine. Perry met Liam by the door right on time, dressed in tight jeans and a loose white top that reminded Liam of pirates. It didn't suit him. Francis doesn't think you can handle it, Perry said. Handle what? Liam shoved his hands in his pockets. Look, I'm not some lightweight who's gonna be dancing on tables after half a pint. I, I didn't drink for a long time, but it's not because they took out my liver. Perry waved vaguely. No, the club, he said. She thinks it's a bad idea. What, no Irish allowed? No, man, it, it's for us, people who were touched in London. He cleared his throat. It's a magic place. Oh, shit. 
Liam genuinely reconsidered. His professional association with Team 3 aside, Liam's personal policy was to avoid magic and anything to do with magic. He'd come by that policy the hard way, and it had never steered him very wrong. But everything was changing, and now there was too much magic in the world to bottle up again. And Asante had said there would never be less magic again. Well, there was one thing that hadn't changed in all of this, and that was Liam. And specifically, Liam's devotion to his team, his friends, his family. He was going to have to get used to this at some point. If it's good enough for you, it's good enough for me, Liam said. You sure? Perry peered into his eyes, and Liam had to remind himself for the zillionth time that Perry couldn't read minds. It might be a little intense for you, like your old bad times. Liam bowed his head. I get you, he said, but I'm over it now. Perry cleared his throat again. Francis, he called. You heard that, right? I tried to warn him. Francis rolled down the ramp. Her lips glittered and her eyes, too, behind her glasses. She wore a sequined miniskirt and not one of the long skirts he'd thought were all she owned. And as soon as Liam realized the shifting mass of bright green wasn't all sequins, wasn't even all fabric, he jerked his eyes away in an effort not to stare. In fact, he turned his back on her and stared at the football trophies in the case instead. She jabbed Liam in the arse with two fingers. You can look, she said. No, no, I don't, what do you mean? You can look at me, she said. It's fine, I'm not ashamed. In all the time since her accident in Middle Coombe, Frances had kept her lower areas mostly covered. Liam had known early on that something about her had changed, of course, based on the unsettling and inhuman movements under her long skirts. And he'd seen glimpses of what lay beneath, though he'd felt it was wrong. A mystery he was not meant to know. She had certainly never been so open with her new reality before. But Liam looked. Frances no longer had legs. She had tentacles instead, perhaps eight or ten of them. Liam wasn't counting. They were a brilliant emerald green with a bluish triangular pattern along the top, with a softer pink along the underside. There were rows of round, pale pink suckers. One of the tentacles reached out and touched his calf, and Liam jumped again. Maybe you shouldn't come with us, she said. You're not going to be all right with what you see in there if I'm already freaking you out. I'll be fine, he insisted. Uh, the color of your legs, uh, your tentacles, Francis said. The color of your tentacles is very uh, attractive. She pursed her lips, probably in an effort not to laugh. Thank you, Liam. I happen to agree. All right, Perry said. Let's do this. Club Pandora had been a warehouse before the change. It still was on the outside. This wasn't Liam's first warehouse party, and he thought nothing of it until he noticed the bouncer's mustache was made of bristling insect legs on the left side. There was an altercation in process. A pair of men with scarves hiding most of their faces were trying to shove past Roach's stash to get into the club. He blocked their way, implacable as a wall and almost as wide. No entry for your kind, he growled. You don't let us by because we're not monsters like you, snapped one of the men. How dare you even show your face in public looking like Perry stepped in with open palms. I think you have urgent business elsewhere, he said, don't you? Unless you fancy having your faces rearranged tonight, the bouncer added. Monsters are vicious, you know, and I could use a snack right about now. 
The larger man plucked at the smaller one's sleeve. Hey, Nigel, maybe we should lay off. The small one turned to Liam. Help us out, man, he said. You look like you're one of us. Pretty sure I'm not, mate, Liam said. Let's go, Nigel, the big one whispered, his voice urgent. Nigel glared at the bouncer one more time. His eyes glinted hazel in the neon. We'll be back with reinforcements, he said. We're gonna purify London. I'll look forward to it, Roachstash replied. Once the pair of troublemakers had made their retreat, the bouncer looked Liam over like he was inspecting for damage. Oi, you sure about this one? He asked Francis. He looks like he's not one of us either. He's good. He's a book burner, Francis said. The bouncer's eyes widened. This is the ginger. He's the one with the sword. Yeah. The bouncer looked Liam over a second time. Thought he'd be taller. More muscles, he said. He visibly strove to overcome his disappointment and forgive Liam for his mundanity. Thanks for what you did, man, Roachstash said. He clasped Liam's hand. We appreciate all the work you've done for us. Yeah, uh, thanks, Liam said and trailed Francis inside. He'd been warned, and Liam had seen plenty of magic in his day. Even so, he was not prepared for what he found in the club. There were the familiar accoutrements of a warehouse turned rave, the lighting rig casting the scene in a shifting spectrum of color, the DJ booth on a raised pedestal at the far end, the bar, the heat, the press of the crowd. But the floor was amber, lit up from within, like the substance, not just the color. Beneath their feet lay something like swarms of fireflies. He looked closer. They were tiny birds, feathers traced with light. They flew in intricate formations, but so slowly that at first glance they seemed frozen in time. Sweet Christ, Liam said. I get why people come to see this. They come to see something. It changes every night, Perry said. Frances's pupils were enormous behind her glasses. Last week it was tar and feathers, and the place stank so badly they shut down for the night before it even got dark. I'll get you drinks, Perry said and pushed away through the crowd. He was stopped a few feet away by a woman with six arms and lightning crackling in her hair. Perry hugged her like they were old friends and stopped to chat. Huh, Liam thought. Were Francis and Perry regulars here? He wondered how anyone could be a regular at a place like this. He wondered why they'd never mentioned it before. Well, no, he knew why. Should we sit? Liam asked Francis. Uh, should I sit? I want to dance, Francis said. She was looking at the crowd and not at Liam. You can sit if you want. She wheeled into the crowd, and before long, she had an entourage of dancers moving with her. Yep, they were regulars. But Liam had started to notice a few things about the clientele here. There was a young man whose nose had turned into dark burled wood, a middle-aged matron whose ears were releasing a steady flow of soap bubbles, a person whose hands had become books, the pages riffling in time to the beat. There, Christ Almighty, were another three people with tentacles where various of their limbs had once been. The reality of it finally caught up with them. Everyone here had been changed by magic in some way or another. Except Liam. Then again, he wasn't entirely untouched by magic either. And suddenly, this all seemed horribly familiar to him. The music, the lights, the heat, the tingling feeling of magic surrounding him, of something inside him reaching up and taking over. 
He shivered and put his head in his hands. You okay, man? Harry was back, swaying enough that he was in danger of spilling the three drinks he held. Liam felt eyes on him. A few people in the crowd were watching him and whispering to one another. He straightened. He'd come through all of that and it was done. The demon was gone, Christina was gone. That wasn't a part of him anymore. And now he felt like hot metal ready to flow into a new shape, freed of all his old constraints. I'm fine, he said. Good, Perry grinned. It'd be a shame for you to get all hung up on the, on the, on the past. Liam frowned at Perry. Had he done shots with his six-armed friend when he'd gone to the bar? They hadn't been here long enough for Perry to be goofy, can't talk right drunk. Perry nodded vigorously, and now the drinks did spill. Liam relieved him of them. Let's grab a table. They passed a wild-haired man. This is him, the man crowed. It's him, our hero. He danced an actual jig in front of his companions, a tiny olive-skinned woman who looked ready to murder people, and a darker-skinned man in a turban who looked like he couldn't bear to stay awake. It's who? The woman asked. It's him, the ginger. The woman rolled her eyes and didn't even bother to hide it from her companion. Yes, I see that. The ginger with the sword. The woman scrutinized Liam. Oh, is that so? The name is Frampton. The wild-haired man pressed a brochure into Liam's hand. This one's on me, but tell your friends. Liam glanced at it as some sort of tour map. Thanks, he said and shoved the paper into his pocket. The woman looked Liam over with new, hungry eyes. You have a sword and you fight magic? Um. Liam looked around for help from Perry, but Perry was leaning on a support beam, holding his head. Liam hadn't known he was such a lightweight. I guess I do fight magic. Liam said, well, that's fair enough. You have a good look, the woman said thoughtfully. I can work with this. She handed him a business card. It was on cheap paper and the phone number had been crossed out with a new one written in by hand in purple ink. My name is Libby Gonzalez and I'm a filmmaker. How would you like to be featured in my next film? It's a documentary about weird London. Featured and your nothing about the question made sense. Then Perry vomited. Except what came out of his mouth was a gush of foul-smelling light that scattered like pieces of glass. And a flock of butterflies that flew circles around Perry until they landed on him and dissolved back into his skin. What the fuck? Liam danced back, then forward again to rest a hand between his friend's shoulders. Hey, man, are you- Francis reappeared from the dance floor. Damnation, we have to get into Asante, she said. She sounded irritated, but not panicked, as if this weren't entirely unexpected as if Perry vomited butterflies every day. Maybe it was an expected side effect of magic liquor? Liam, can you lift him? I'll call a car. Liam picked up Perry in a fireman's carry. His friend was lighter than he should have been, almost like he was hollowed out inside. On the plus side, Liam reflected, maybe vomiting butterflies meant Perry wasn't a lightweight in the other sense after all. Libby trailed them to the door as they left. Call me, she said. Yeah, Liam answered. I'll be sure to get right on that. We can imagine many potential futures. 
Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Two. Liam looked for Perry the next morning in his usual quarters, a former science room with a periodic table and Moe's hardness chart still hanging on the walls. Side by side with tacked up sketches of pentagrams, concentric spheres, and several still life sketches of books. But he wasn't there. Only one place to look the school library. Asante had well and truly taken over, and stacks of books were piled haphazardly in rows that reminded Liam of the Black Archives, or at least the pre Francis archives, before the Vatican had agreed to invest in shelves. Perry was curled up on his side on a makeshift cot that looked like it had been army surplus 50 years ago. Wires of blackened silver spiraled up his limbs across his chest and came together where a silver cross rested on his forehead. He looked pale and a little green. Whoa, Asante, isn't all that gonna hurt him? Liam asked. Perry has made a magic, and they... What's... what's going on? Asante set her pen down where she'd left off writing. Her eyes were puffy and red, and she had a little more gray in her hair than Liam remembered. Magic is the problem. From his sickbed, Perry croaked, This mortal shell was never meant for the powers that course within it. For all flesh must fail, and my spirit is greater than yours. What the living fuck? Liam stared at him, but Perry hadn't even opened his eyes. Where were you last night? Asante asked Liam. Francis was cagey, and Perry is... We were at the edge of the beyond, and I felt the gaze of those who gave my charge, Perry said. No, Liam realized with a start. This was two beings in one body, and the one who was speaking now? That one was Aaron. Is he gonna be all right? All flesh must fail, 
Aaron said again. He shuddered, a thing that started at his head and moved through him to his toes as if he were a sea. Speak with me in the hall, Liam, Asante said, please. Liam spent one more anxious look on Perry, but the man was still now. He followed Asante out. The hallways were hung with stained glass windows the school's children had made out of tissue paper. Some of them had been more diligent than others, and Liam felt a kinship with a mystery child named Lucas, whose work looked like it had been done in two minutes behind his back in the dark on a moving ship. Asante crossed her arms and watched Liam's toes. Perry is going to die, she said. What? Like, now? What's wrong with him? It's a cosmic joke, Asante said. Perry is allergic to magic. Liam shook his head. That doesn't make any sense. It does, though, Asante said, grim. Magic is the essence of change. The balance that allows Aaron to stay in Perry's body is very delicate, and any sort of magical pressure can change that configuration. He loses control of himself, his muscles, his brain. Like being drunk. Like that. She raised her hand to her eyes. This is the beginning of the end, she said. The tide is rising faster and faster, and I can't find anything that will even slow it down. Perry is just a canary, a sign of what's happening here. He'll be fine if he stays away from places like wherever you were last night, but I don't know how long we have until it's like that everywhere. Everywhere. Liam remembered that formless, shifting nothing with a pink sky. Asante's shoulders shook. Are you all right? He asked tentatively, can I get you a, a chocolate bar or some whiskey? For now, just promise me you won't let Perry go back to that place. I doubt he wants to. Or any of the more magical places in London. They'll hurt him, and I don't know how long I can hold this at bay. Will do, Liam said. Thank you, Liam, Asante said. She pulled Liam into a hug, an awkward first. Liam patted her back helplessly. I need him, Asante said at last. I need him to help with the work. I need all of you. There just isn't enough time. We'll find a way, Liam said. I trust you. Asante glanced over at Perry again. Just one thing. Do you mind keeping this to yourself for a little while? Perry wants to tell Sal on his own terms. I thought we weren't keeping secrets anymore. He could feel the corners of his mouth pulling down. We are all entitled to our private lives. Asante patted his arm. Now, go get some sleep. Liam was still wired, no matter how late at night it was. He didn't want to be alone, but he'd run short of people. He was drawn to the light and sound leaking from the former teacher's lounge. He found Grace and Sal holed up watching a cooking show with a bag of popcorn. He had to admit they seemed good together. Sal seemed happy. Grace seemed human. Sal noticed him first. Want a seat? She asked. She moved to the center to make room for him. Liam slouched his way over to Sal, feeling as if the secret of Perry's condition was lit over his head like a neon sign. He tried to put on his best impression of normalcy, tried to think of what he'd say if she asked him what he'd been up to this evening. He didn't want to lie, but he'd been asked not to blurt out a difficult truth. Salvation came on its own. The business card fluttered out of his pocket as he sat down. Sal picked it up. 
Libby Gonzalez, Infinite Sight Productions? What's that all about? You trying to break into acting now that you're out of the Vatican? She looked at him sidelong. If you're planning on doing that, you might want to let your hair grow a little more. Maybe a beard. You still look like a monk. Grace stifled a laugh. Liam shrugged with his whole body. I don't know their deal, he said. They said they're making a film and they want me to be in it. What kind of film? Tell me it's not porn. Liam snorted. It's a documentary about magic, he said. He tried to think of what he would say if he weren't trying to hide anything. So we should probably try to shut it down. Why? Grace asked. Sal continued her thought. Who's it kind of hurt? We've got bigger fish to fry. Well, even if we don't keep them from it, there's team two, I reckon. I shouldn't step on their toes. Sal folded her arms behind her head. I don't see how you're in their jurisdiction anymore, she said. And it's not like they've been able to keep weird London a secret. Cat's out of the bag now, Liam. The world knows something is happening, even if they don't know what. Fair. Liam watched the TV, where an excitable young woman was in ecstasies over a bowl of meringue. Sal popped a kernel of popcorn into her mouth. So, if there's nothing to stop you, are you gonna do it? There was a challenge in her delivery. Liam turned the idea over, like it was a smooth stone in his fingers. He wasn't even sure where to begin making the decision. Do you think I should? Sal and Grace exchanged a look, and Liam suddenly suspected they'd had a conversation about him before this. Sometimes, Sal said, I get the idea that you don't trust your own judgment. But I'm not your mother or your boss or anything, really. But I don't know if it's your decision, Grace interrupted. She gave him a hard look. Think about it on your own. Do you want to do this? No help from this quarter, then. I have no idea. Work it out, Sal said. She turned back to the TV. With the lapse in conversation, Liam felt like Perry's condition was gonna burst out of him, like that baby alien from Alien. Sal deserved to know, and Liam hated to keep a secret, but it also wasn't his place to make that decision. Better to avoid the question. I'm taking a walk, Liam said, taking his feet. Nobody wait up. We won't, said Grace. The pockets of magic that made up weird London had pooled in some places, creating artifacts that were strange, beautiful, or horrifying, and often still in flux. He walked along the route given on the map that wild-haired man had given him, Frampton. It was a tour of the most magical parts of London, or at least the ones with the showiest and most visceral demonstrations of magic. It reminded him of Middle Coombe, things that oozed into each other, losing their boundaries. There was a park bench where the wood had come back to life and was now thickly covered with leaves. A bird's nest that had changed to glass, with the nestlings still turned to the sky, mouths open. In one place, the sidewalk had become a writhing mass of earthworms. In another, the cement had flowed into the street like honey. He wrote his initials in that one, and watched as the surface of the cement slowly returned to smoothness. There was a townhouse with a sign nailed to the door, ten pounds to see infinity. Liam chose not to knock. A documentary about magic. Everything about it went against years of Vatican policy and practice. But Sal was right, Team 2 was probably too overwhelmed to cope with it now. Leon wanted to do it, he wanted to. But even so, why should he participate? He couldn't think of a reason that did him credit. The glory of being in a movie? He tried not to let vanity get the best of him. 
fortune, if not fame. Libby hadn't exactly smelled of wealth, so he doubted much money would come his way. Though he had begun to wonder how much longer the team could survive without the Vatican's financial backing. Was there a reason to be involved in something like this, beyond cheap personal gratification? Nah. He crumpled the business card in his pocket. He just wouldn't ever call her back. Easy enough. Wouldn't be the first woman he'd done that to. A kid with pink hair came pelting down the block, arms waving. Help! Hey, is someone to help us? The lamp got someone. Where? Liam asked. The kid pointed. Next intersection? Can you help? Liam ran. The lamppost was decorated with scrolls of wrought iron, but now those had uncurled and stretched out into whips. As promised, the lamp was waving a cyclist in the air, bike and all, twined in its grasp. The cyclist wore a red helmet with a flash decal on it and shrieked like a car alarm. The bulb was on and flickered between purple and green. The streetlights had proven to be impossible to kill outright. Asante had suggested they were part of a single entity, like those mushrooms that turned out to be miles and miles big. But there was a way to shut them down for a while. Liam looked around for a weapon. Manhole covers were too heavy. None of the trees nearby had a branch sturdy enough for this purpose. But here was some kid's skateboard propped up in the fenced-off front garden of a flat. Liam hopped the fence to grab the skateboard. Then he turned and waved it in the air until he got the attention of the lamppost. Oi, over here, you overgrown piece of scrap metal. The lamp ignored him, preferring to focus on the bike. Its appendages crushed the tubing like it was a stress toy. The cyclist continued to shriek. Liam sighed and took a running leap at the lamp. It shuddered at his touch and dropped the cyclist to strike at Liam instead. He climbed up the post inch by inch. The black paint was chipping and scraped his fingers. One of the lamp's whips lashed Liam across the back and knocked the wind out of him. He gasped and flailed upward with the skateboard, striking at the glass and closing the lamp bulb. It broke and spilled into his hair. The lamp changed tactics now and twined its appendages around Liam, trying to pull him away. He kept hold of the post with his legs and continued to smash blindly at the light above him. He had to take the bulb out eventually. And then there was a tiny pop in the smell of sour beer, and the street lamp went still. It would only last until some misguided civil servant replaced the light. But for now, the streets were safe once more. Liam slid to the ground. Hey, man. He squatted next to the cyclist and his twisted bike. A spill of freshly laundered and folded socks had fallen from his messenger bag. You all right? The cyclist gave up on sitting and lay flat on the sidewalk. Fuck, he said. Just give me a minute. Liam patted his shoulder. Take all the time you need. I'll stay here until you're upright. The kid raced up to Liam, eyes glowing with excitement. That was so cool, mister. Are you the ginger who saved us from the dragon? I, uh, I suppose I am, he smiled. How do you even know about that? Everyone knows, he said. You're a legend. The kid pretended to slash the air with a non-existent sword. Can you tell me how to fight magic too? I want to be like you, helping to save people from bad magic. Liam laughed. It's a dangerous job, and I wouldn't want you to get hurt. Maybe when you're more than half grown. You live around here? Yeah, this is my block. I'll tell you what. Here's my phone number. Liam fished a marker from his bag and wrote on the kid's arm. If the lamp wakes up again or you have any other trouble, go ahead and call me. If I can come and help you out, I will. And then a thought struck him like an anvil falling from the sky. 
He sat down next to the cyclist from the weight of it. His calling was to protect people from magic, to keep the same things from happening to them as had happened to him. There was no way to stop magic out of London now, though. No turning back the clock. So maybe it was time to change strategies toward public awareness of the problem. You have to name something to deal with it. He'd heard that once. If he did the documentary, he could warn people. He could teach them how to protect themselves. He could teach them how to fight and when to run. He dug out his cell phone and dialed. I, uh, yeah, Libby, was it? When can we meet up? You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hello, everyone. I would like to thank you for accepting the offered position for the examination and repair expedition out to Outpost Freestead. My God. Are you seeing this? Kaerta. What the fuck? Then go do it then. If we can leave, we need to get moving. This storm is not normal. We must leave. During these storms, travel is not advised. The White Vault. Available for free, however you listen to podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, or at realm.fm.